When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at national borders in relation to nomadic peoples, and specifically in relation to the Bedouin in the Middle East. So I'm going to focus on two contexts, one, the formation of Iraq's southern border with Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, and the effects of the historical processes of border formation on the Bedouin in southern Iraq today, and second, on the Bedouin in the Negev around Israel's southern border with Egypt. I talked to a range of scholars working on these topics, and you'll hear from them throughout this episode. And we talked about not only the historical processes that have led to these relatively new national borders, but also about how these borders have calcified and become increasingly militarized over the course of the 20th century, and what that means for the nomadic, semi-nomadic, and formerly nomadic peoples who live around these border zones. We also talk about Bedouin practices of creating borders and territorial delimitations and how we can think about alternative forms of border making that are practiced by nomadic peoples in addition to or instead of these militarized impermeable national borders. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. When we think about modern nation-state borders and their associated security infrastructure, we tend to take them and the prominent role that they play in our societies and how we organize our lives pretty much for granted. Even in cases where you're crossing, let's say, a state border, which might not be demarcated by anything except a sign that says 
I don't know, welcome to New York, we still imagine that border as being more permanent and tangible than it actually is. We can imagine where that border lies, we can correlate it to a line on a map, and the act of crossing that border, no matter how arbitrary it might be, feels meaningful to us because it tells us that we have crossed into a space that is somehow different from where we came from. And of course, when crossing national borders, this feeling is magnified exponentially, especially because of the sheer logistics that go into crossing from one country to another. And we take for granted that when we travel, we have to have documentation like passports and visas that allow us to cross a national border and that we'll have to show that documentation at the border and get it approved, or that depending on where we come from or where we're going, certain borders are closed to us entirely simply on the basis of national origin. But this fixity of national borders and the extent to which they govern our movements and our worldviews is in many ways a recent phenomenon. And that's not to say that borders or passports are a modern invention, because they're definitely not, but the function and nature of borders has changed significantly over the past few hundred years. The borders that we have today, I would say, are largely a product of two factors, war and colonialism. So European colonial powers mapped their territories, established their boundaries, and fortified those boundaries in order to definitively stake their claim and exert control over a specific area of land, its peoples, and its resources. And then at the same time, wars between European powers, and in particular the First World War, culminated in peace treaties which redrew and defined national borders and their territorial sovereignty. Now, these histories are a vast and complex area of study all on their own. But what I'm going to explore in this episode is examples of what happens when these modern border-making processes interact with nomadic peoples, and how the mobility that is inherent to a nomadic lifestyle is perceived and altered and controlled within modern border regimes, and how nomadic peoples respond to such borders. And a prime example of this is found in the modern Middle East, uh, where there are many scholars who research the histories of national border formation in the Middle East, especially under colonial authority. So under European colonial control of the Eastern Mediterranean in the first half of the 20th century, nomadic peoples, so the Bedouin, and a prevalent stereotype of this sort of ungovernable nomad loomed large in the Western imagination. In the case of Iraq, Iraq's national borders were to a large extent determined by a sort of perceived Bedouin threat and designed to distance nomadic populations from one another, intersect their migratory routes, or force them into restricted geographical areas, which could then be more easily controlled and surveilled. And this is certainly the dominant narrative of how modern Middle Eastern borders were formed during the Mandate period. So we hear about leaders you know, sitting in London and Paris and Geneva, dividing up territories between them, like that infamous but definitely apocryphal story of Churchill's sneeze, which claims that 
Winston Churchill sneezed while he was drawing the line that would become the border between Jordan and Saudi Arabia. And so his hand moved and created the triangular border between the two countries that was otherwise supposed to be a straight line. And as untrue as that story definitely is, it's indicative of how we tend to think about borders as being made, especially in colonized territories, as being these almost God-given institutions that are created from on high and by this distant authority. But these narratives erase the local actors, both the colonizer and colonized, who were highly influential in shaping the layout and appearance of national borders. So I talked to Dr. Carl Shook, who wrote his 2018 PhD dissertation at the University of Chicago on the origins and formation of Iraq's national borders under the British mandate, about his research into the historical processes underlying the creation of Iraq's southern border with Saudi Arabia, and about how the Bedouin people living in this region figured into imperial colonial aims of territorial control as this border was being defined. What I was particularly interested in concerning Iraq was to understand what happens before the treaties. So I want to know what happens before these sorts of final status documents and processes take place, before the map, before the League of Nations signs off on a uh, mandate for Mesopotamia. Looking at sort of the backstory brought me to the processes of boundary making. And the people that I was studying and reading about are people who live and work in the Syrian desert, which is, you know, roughly essentially Western Iraq, Eastern Syria, just a little bit of the northern modern state of Saudi Arabia to give us kind of some mental geography here. Uh, In general, this area, particularly in the south of Iraq, is referred to as the Shamia. And, you know, crucially, the Shamia is a historical, it's a meaningful geographical, geological, you know, unit that, that is crossed by the modern state between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, the, the people that I ended up encountering in the sources were provincial British forces, not sort of the bold-faced names that we're used to reading, certainly not many of the colonial elites based in Baghdad, also provincial uh, officials, district governors of the Iraqi government, and also uh, are the accounts uh, and the discourse and the relationship of these officials to the Bedouin tribes and sheikhs living in this transnational zone or soon-to-be transnational zone of Northern Arabia and uh, the Syrian desert. So with all of these players in the field, you know, literally responding to historical forces, attempting to determine what this new political order meant for them uh, and their lives and their livelihoods, you know, I, I came at these questions with a couple different approaches. One of them was to look at borders as a process that involves these human figures um, and not as static institutions. Certainly not lines on a map or even worse, lines in the sand, if you want to go that far. You know, I understand borders as beginning from the process of just imagining, projecting out, you know, loose understandings of territorial and social difference onto a landscape like, let's say, historical Mesopotamia. But then during negotiations and so the mechanisms of day-to-day rule and governance, again, before maps and borders are demarcated 
or even delimited. We're a long way from border posts being laid down in the desert and strict surveys being made of this work. And then working in this borderland as I was, uh, this fit with, with another one of my goals, which was to decenter these state-centric narratives about state building, and in particular, a state-centric historiography about the origins of modern Iraq. Um, in short, you know, these, these denizens of the borderland that I was speaking about and I ended up working on in my research um, have agency and through cooperation, through resistance, I argue they're able to shape, if not the final locations of the boundaries, uh, they're able to shape the nature of those uh, boundaries uh, going forward. And I think we see this in the kind of piecemeal nature of Iraq's boundaries. Each of them, if we just take a Western boundary, the Southern boundary with Nej, the boundary with Syria, the boundary with Turkey, um, all develop on their own terms, specific to the historical and local circumstances. This piecemeal nature of creating Iraq's modern national borders is a prime example of the messiness that is inherent to all processes of border making and the various actors and imaginaries and political and economic concerns that underpin all national borders. And where Bedouin populations around this particular border are concerned, there was also an extremely piecemeal cherry-picked and arbitrary nature as to how Bedouin tribes in the Shamia were bordered and how they were assigned a new national identity as being either Iraqi or Saudi. By 1922, when we see the, the first um, sort of agreements pen to paper between British mandate authorities based in Baghdad and Ibn Saud of uh, Nedj, we have a mandate. So we have this mandate system established in 1920. And in short, the mandate system has allowed the uh, the British Empire and uh, the French uh, to maintain a presence, an active presence in these exonomous lands. So the French are in Syria, greater Syria, uh, Syria and Lebanon, the British are in Palestine, uh, Transjordan and Iraq. Now, there are there are technical requirements to being a mandate power. And the essence is that the British and the French are here to assist sort of indigenous governments in Iraq and Syria, for example, until they are able to stand on their own. Literally, that's in the text of the, uh, of the League of Nations Charter, right? Until they're able to stand on their own and as independent nations. In Iraq, this mandate is never put into place for reasons we don't really have time to get into today. Uh, the British want more autonomy. They essentially don't want to be limited by the terms of the mandate. They want to stay longer and they want to have a more robust military presence in Iraq, basically. Um, so they enact a series of uh, Anglo-Iraqi treaties, and they, these, each of these kind of follows the previous one, and this is what really governs and shapes Britain's role in Iraq. But some sort of state building still needs to happen, and whether you are a mandate in technical terms or in spirit, this means recognizable uh, sovereign borders. You know, before we get into these, just into the sort of the development of these borders themselves, I think it's important to point out that the British dominate the process of border formation. 
the Iraqi state, the the, the monarchy of uh, Faisal the first, right? One of these Hashemite kings is part of the process, but the British and most importantly, British security concerns really dominate this process. So there are a couple agreements um, in play. Uh, they both date to 1922. Uh, and these are agreements with uh, Ibn Saud, who is the uh, uh, the leader of this sort of nascent uh, Saudi state. These agreements, they have, they have geographical aspects to them. Uh, if you look at the maps produced in these meetings and out coming out of these negotiations, there are they are maps of uh, the Shamia, and there are lines on them. And you see you see a proposed neutral zone, this little flattened diamond shape that you see on some early maps of Iraq. Uh, you see different proposals for Kuwait's boundaries. But what's really at stake in these agreements from in these 1922 uh, treaties is sort of a more effective and social idea of territorial governance. So here the focus is twofold. One is to identify really for the first time in this context, uh, which tribes belong to, and this is again their term, which tribes belong to uh, Nejd and are therefore the responsibility of and then, of course, which tribes are, quote unquote, Iraqi tribes. And the way that this is done is the territories, the seasonal territories of each of these tribes, along with some information about where they are purported to spend you know, their time when they need to water animals at fixed wells. This information is kind of tabulated and a rough map is drawn up of where these tribes are most of the time. And then through these inevitably sort of overlapping territories, or the term in Arabic is dira, a straight line is proposed, right? That more or less best divides these up. So this is one focus of the, of the UKER and the Bahra agreements from 1922. Um, and then the other is to settle the question, a political question really, uh, between uh, mainly, again, mainly the British and Ibn Saud as to what this frontier zone will look like, and particularly what state authority will look like in this frontier zone. So there are at this point within this document, you see prohibitions against sort of the hardening or the building up of uh, military uh, installations, police forces uh, within literally the vicinity of the border. The fact that this, everybody has their own idea of what the vicinity of the border is uh, leads to some problems later on. But that's really the, that sets the tone for the southern, for Iraq's southern border and its relationship with Ibn Saud. This recognition that there is no firm border, but there are certain tribes that are in one way or another associated with each state and sort of the technical terms of how to essentially form a boundary uh, regime, right? How as two neighboring states, how do we cooperate? How do we in effect work together to make this border meaningful for the people who live, who live there? 
The question of what the Iraq-Saudi border means to the Bedouin populations living around it is an open one. As Dr. Shook describes, Bedouin tribes used to be able to cross the Shamia freely, and during the border-making process were simply assigned to one country where they appeared to spend most, but not necessarily all, of their time. So these new border regimes and the fact that they quickly became highly and increasingly militarized and fortified during later territorial borders disputes between Saudi Arabia and Iraq changed and narrowed the scope of pastoral migration routes, impeded access to resources like water and pasture land, and severed cross-tribal and intertribal Bedouin relationships by cutting off access to communal spaces like markets where Bedouin tribes from across the region would come together to meet and negotiate and trade. But on the other hand, Bedouin populations have in some ways benefited from the border. Wherever you have a system that controls the passage of goods and people, you'll also have smugglers and people who are willing to help get things across the border illegally. So some members of the Bedouin on both sides of the border have certainly benefited economically from the existence of the border and from cross-border smuggling. But of course, the Bedouin are then increasingly seen as criminals and further marginalized in society because of these illicit activities. So to get more information about the Bedouin in contemporary Iraq, I talked to Dr. Jafar Jodhari and Dr. Salah Hatem at Iraq's University of Al-Qadisiya, where they're leading a project to document the intangible cultural heritage of the Bedouin living in southern Iraq today. So uh, the first point is uh, that the Bedouin actually, they put themselves away from the governments and the governments actually put uh, uh, themselves away from them. So there is no connection between the Bedouins and the government. They don't have any representative in the parliament. They don't have a public figure that can speak to the uh, 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 any type of uh, government. So that's why they been neglected uh, from all the governments that, that led Iraq. Nobody cares about nobody cares about them. Uh, nobody looks after them. We don't have uh, statistical uh, information about them, how many they are, how do they feel, are they okay? Uh, and, you know, lots of uh, political issues uh, uh, actually, uh, you know, raised during the last uh, 30 years. Uh, we have, you know, there is no border, there, there was no border between uh, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, Kuwait uh, and Jordan. So they used to, you know, travel uh, from Iraq to the other to neighboring countries. Uh, and always uh, the Iraqis government punished them, actually, for traveling, for breaking the law. But in the same time, uh, the Iraqi government doesn't offer something. So it's just punishing, not offering uh, things. So they, uh, uh, so that's why they, they, they feel themselves as, uh, as a target of the government. Uh, when we go there, they they afraid of us. They, uh, they think we will... Uh, you know, like prosecute them, or we know their uh, wrongdoing, because they they think that uh, 
you know, their activities is against the law. They feel that the Iraqi government make them made them feeling that they are outdoors or something like that. So the first conclusion is that there is no relationship between, or there is there is a bad relationship between them and the Iraqi government. Yeah. For the second uh, result that they found, just to give a little bit of, you know, background about the Bedouins in Iraq, which um, Jafar had mentioned right before, um, the, the Bedouins in Iraq are seemed almost like an outcast. They are very forgotten within society. And so um, there is this disconnect between, you know, the Bedouins. There's not a lot of research done. And so um, this project is really important because they, they, they're looking at this, uh, you know, very important, you know, part of Iraqi uh, heritage um, and, and learning about them more because, you know, the government hasn't been involved and there hasn't been any studies. And that's what, you know, Dr. Salah's team has found um, within their studies. So they are very forgotten. Um, but what they realized also is that uh, these people who've lived in the desert have learned to cope within very extreme heat. So um, he's talking about how it extends, they, they extend between, um, we'd say like West Ramadi to the borders with Saudi Arabia and Kuwait almost. And, um, you know, if you look at a map, that's mostly desert. So they've learned how to, um, you know, th through inherited knowledge from their, um, you know, ancestors and, and whatnot, they've learned how to, uh, you know, find water. Um, so there's special plants that they use, um, which is called akul. Akul, I don't know how to really translate it to English, but uh, also cacti um, to find uh, water. Um, and also they've learned, like, they've inherited a lot of uh, medicinal, um, traditional medicine. Um, and that's how, you know, they treat, uh, you know, themselves. Another very important uh, factor here that's been affecting their lives is that they realized there's been a great, um, uh, their land has kind of been narrowing because of uh, agriculture development. Um, so a lot of these lands have been taken to, you know, expand on just, you know, farming, um, but not but not just that. They've also been taking land for uh, brick factories. And so you find that um, their way of life is almost going to be extinct because um, they, they can't take care of their camels as they were able to before. Their camels don't have, you know, the plants that they need to feed them or the water. And so this is is this thing is almost imminent or it's probably happening within the next few years. Um, they're just running out of space. And so what are your goals for this project? Your research aims to create a teaching module for Iraq's national university curriculum on the intangible cultural heritage of the Bedouin. But do you see this kind of public education of broader Iraqi society about the Bedouin as also leading to larger scale social change or improvements for the Bedouin? In terms of our goal, at the end of the project, uh, we will write to the Iraqi parliament to make, you know, the quota because uh, there is uh, our constitution 
there is a, a quota for the women, for the Iraqi minorities. And we would like to suggest that the Bedouin should have a quota. Uh, and then we should select uh, a representative from the real Bedouins uh, who lives already in the desert to come to the to be a member of the Iraqi parliament to speak of the, the Bedouins. Uh, and of course, uh, we should teach uh, our students how to respect the Bedouins, respect their, their, their accent, their, their fashion, their dress, uh, their everyday life. Uh, we should not make a joke. We should not insult them. Uh, they are a real part of Iraq. They are the indigenous people of Iraq. Uh, most of the Iraqis came from, or uh, each tribe of Iraq uh, uh, has a part of each tribe, uh, you know, has a, a Bedouin. For example, my tribe uh, has, we share the, the Jodari, for example. There's a Jodari Bedouin, and there's a Jodari living in the, in the city. So they are part part uh, of us, uh, part of our, our community, and they are suffer. You know, they are not enjoying their life. They are facing the climate change, facing the harsh weather, fa facing the harsh environment. They they are just need to survive. Survive. They are, uh, you know, safe people. They are lovely people. Uh, we should take care of them. We have the resources. They don't have access to the. Uh, public money that we are we are we do they are of course they there's they we should convince them that they should believe in the state and the border uh because you know in, in their mentality they think there is no border of the desert the, the, the desert is open there is no border but we put the border we punish them when they cross the border uh, we don't don't offer any uh, service uh, to them. No clean water, no paved roads, no school for their children, no hospital uh, when they get sick. So uh, they live in the medieval period. And why we should feel uh, responsible to them. So we will speak about that in a workshop and in, in our curriculum with the decision maker, with the stakeholders. So it's a big responsibility for us, actually. You are, you, of course, we are enjoying uh, doing the research, but it's uh, give us a, a responsibility. For me, I don't know before about their, their everyday life. I'm now surprised. So we are uh, dealing with the Iraqi living heritage. So uh, bringing the past and uh, putting uh, and knowing the future. Uh, so we need to uh, work with the how to use heritage to thrive the, the your community. Uh, heritage is a tool. So we are using heritage to value the Bedouin. Uh, and as a result, one of the value of the Bedouin is representative. So it's just a start. Uh, the project is just a start. Uh, the project will help Iraqis, different stakeholders, to understand the Bedouins. Once everybody understood the Bedouins, then we think about uh, uh, how to serve them better. Dr. Jotharu's and Dr. Hatem's proposal for increased awareness and understanding of Bedouin culture and for political representation for the Bedouin is urgently needed. 
given how the lives of the Bedouin in southern Iraq continue to be affected today by ongoing conflicts like the American occupation of Iraq and the rise of ISIS and the increasing militarization of the Iraq-Saudi border as a result of this fear of the cross-border spread of Islamic fundamentalism. I'll give the last word on this topic to Dr. Shook on how these border security regimes continue to affect the Bedouin of southern Iraq today. You know, many of these boundaries, particularly the boundaries that, you know, that I study between Iraq with Saudi Arabia and Iraq with Syria, remain for a whole host of reasons. It's not a perfectly straight line, uh, but remain relatively uh, sort of isolated and both literally and you know, sort of functionally distant from centralized authority in Iraq. We see this with the reliance on tribal levies during Iraq's you know, war against Islamic State. You know, I mean, this is happening in Syria as well. Also, the logics, the, 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 the practice of, or the, this, this continued goal of an absolute or, or sort of hard border. So there is, as of, you know, four or five years ago, there is a, a border fence between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. You know, this is also a response, you know, ostensibly to uh, Islamic State. And I, you know, we can, I think there's certainly a place to discuss the rhetorical and political value of building fences and walls with your neighbors. Uh, I don't think that's unique to, uh, to this case. It's certainly not unique to you know, the United States's, you know, portrayal of the border with Mexico. But what does, you know, interest me with this, with this border fence is that if the goal is to prevent, from the Saudi point of view, if the goal is to prevent Islamic State terrorists from infiltrating Saudi Arabia from Iraq, when does that fence come down? When does this boundary become, you know, in effect softer, right? I don't think it will. <laughs> Uh, you know, these boundaries tend to to harden and calcify over time. And I don't see that sort of priority and that vision of uh, or that goal changing. So in in a similar way to the middle and late 1920s, where the result is a uh, militarized southern desert uh, in Iraq, I don't think that... I mean, I think the legacy of this fence, the border fence uh, between Iraq and Saudi Arabia is going to last long, much longer than the, you know, let's, let's say, you know, the acute terror threat of, you know, ISIS uh, fighters. I mean, what, what interests me, and I've done, you know, no real sort of uh, research on this, uh, but what interests me is the, the next step or the effect that that has on the way that states think about their neighbors, think about their, their borders. Uh, because it, as the nature of the border changes, I think uh, the nature of the polity that it encompasses and purports to protect changes as well. So on that note, let's move from Iraq to Israel and Palestine and the Bedouin in the Negev desert of southern Israel. Now, this is another context where we can find a tangled historical web of 
state formation and border making influenced by a variety of local and national and international actors. But with the Bedouin in the Negev, I want to talk more specifically about how local Bedouin populations perceive national boundaries and other state institutions, as well as how the Negev Bedouin create and define their own boundaries and systems of defining borders and property that both predate and coexist with state border regimes. For this, I spoke with Dr. Davida Eisenberg-Degen, who's an archaeologist with the Israeli Antiquities Authority and lecturer at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, about her research into various types of Bedouin rock art and archaeological evidence for Bedouin occupation of the Negev throughout history. I'm going to start off uh, with where the Negev is, a bit of a description of the Negev. The Negev is actually a very, very large section, uh, the southern section of Israel, nowadays Israel, but it's actually an even more extensive area um, connecting to the Sahara to the west and to Arabia in the east. So we're actually talking about a very large uh, area of land, desert, which has always been a migration area. Um, the Negev also divide can be divided into a lot of the different subsections uh, based on the um, geography and the topography. And then in the northern Negev, you can have areas with, let's say, 200 um, milliliters of annual rainfall, whereas other areas for the south can maybe have 80 millimeters of uh, annual rainfall. So you can see that there's a very large difference. It's arid, but in some areas it's super arid, in other areas it's semi-arid. And it was always used for migration. The migration routes were usually uh, from the east towards the north and northwest, towards the more um, fertile lands. And we can see that the first pastorals were in the Negev already 6,000 years BC. So we're talking about a much longer history of uh, pastoral life. The conditions of the Negev also didn't change much over the, the past few thousand years. So the migrations that we see also in prehistory and in much earlier times continued on up until present day. And these relationships, these uh, nomads always had a relationship with the settled land because they depend on the settled land for marketplaces, for trade. So we know that, for instance, in prehistory, we can see the relationship with goods which are made in the desert and are trade in um, further north cities, and then they made their way into the settled uh, communities. And this uh, coexistence is really important. And we see that when the Negev goes through a, um, a more harsh political period, when it's deserted, then also we see that less and less nomads and less tribes exist in the Negev. So in the Abbasid period, around the 9th or 10th century, we see almost a total desertion of the Negev. And that's also a period that we see the Negev as being almost empty. We know that there are people living there. There are nomads who are still um, moving around with their flocks, but it's relatively uh, small amounts and small tribes. And we see a change closer to the late Ottoman period, the Mandate period, that we see that the migrations um, become more intensified. And it starts, we think, in the 16th century. But if you compare the, the names of the people who claim that they made it into uh, the Negev starting in the 16th century, and then you compare it to 
um, tax uh, lists of the Ottoman period and Ottoman government, we see that there's no, um, no continuity. We see that the names are different people, different tribes, and it seems that they made their movement into the Negev much, much later. Now, because the Negev is so unhospitable and so dry and a difficult area, no one wanted to stay there. Their main goal was to continue up into more fertile lands and continue up north either north or northwest. So the people who stayed in the Negev are usually the weaker people, the weaker tribes who either lost in wars or had no other uh, choice but to be pushed, literally pushed into these desert areas. It seems like most of the people who live in the Negev nowadays, it's a result of the past two to 400 years. We have the last uh, large tribal war uh, at the end of the 19th century, around 1890, and the Azazme, who was a tribe who lost this war, was literally pushed into the Negev, and that's where they stay. Um, many of them still live today. So we know that we had many, many tribes. Um, we know that before 1948, there were roughly 95 different tribes that were divided into confederations, which is um, literally a few tribes working together strengthening their, their power by having um, political and other uh, relations. And the Ottomans, because, as, as I mentioned, the, the tribes and the nomads always had this connection with the settled lands, then it wasn't always a positive connection. And uh, the Ottomans really tried settling the Bedouin. 1858, we have the Ottoman land law, and they tried encouraging the Bedouin to first of all, settle down, and secondly, uh, register their lands. But together with registering your lands, you are also um, liable afterwards to taxes and also to, in some cases, be forced into the Ottoman army. And we see that very, very few people, very few Bedouins, but also in general, would register their lands. Very, very few people did. So we know that the Bedouins were migrating through the Negev, not necessarily to Jordan and Egypt, but they did have family relationships with uh, people who also lived uh, to the east and to the west. And throughout the Ottoman period, those borders were open. So they could uh, technically um, move around and, and also visit family and also go to other areas that perhaps had a better um, vegetation for their flocks. Uh, during these periods, we're also talking about the Bedouin who were mostly, if not totally, reliable on the sheep and goat and camels. And agriculture only came in, in very recently, in the past 100 to 150 years, and also then in a very limited way. The Bedouins were really uh, kind of did what they thought they should be doing on their own. They were very autom autonomous and they were not very happy with the government in the sense that they were being forced into um, possibly registering their land, which is something that they did not want to do and wasn't part of their culture up to that point. And then towards World War I, um, they went and they fought with the British. And the British, so, so, so it said, um, promised them um, autonomy. But uh, that didn't happen. And we know that prior to 1948, there were around 65,000 Bedouins residing in the Negev or moving around the Negev. And with the formation of the State of Israel, that number was reduced to 11,000. Uh, nowadays, the number has grown and increased to 275,000 
Bedouins who live in the Negev nowadays. British didn't do much in the sense of registering land. They accepted what was already registered in the Ottoman period, and they also opened the opportunity for Bedouin again to, to come and register their land, and very, very few did. Uh, I didn't mention that the Ottomans, one of the things that they did in order to try and uh, control the Bedouins is um, build uh, the cities. They, they built Beersheba, which was uh, planned in 1900 and was already, uh, by 1903, it was already standing. 1906, it even had electricity, it had a water pump. I mean, these amazing things that you wouldn't expect 120 years ago and definitely not on the verge of the desert. And they encouraged the Bedouin to settle there. They offered them reduced land, reduced prices for the land, but uh, very few did. It was mostly the sheiks. They also had a school for the children of the sheik, and they wanted to educate the Bedouin, and they saw them as um, ignorant. And they hoped to reduce um, their behavior, reduce the raids by uh, forming these cities and by education. But there wasn't much... uh, answer to this demand, and they did not really change their way of life, and which is just nomadic, it's moving around. And you've talked a bit about how the Ottoman and British officials organized the Negev and the Negev Bedouin through these land registration and urbanization projects. What can you say about how the Negev Bedouin perceived the land and sort of spatially organized their landscape? It's very difficult, first of all, for me as an outsider to try and answer that. I I can only um, say what I've read and what I've heard, but the connection that a person has to the land is a really personal, cultural aspect of of their life. It's a very strong one. We do know that they saw the land more as patched. When we talk about territories, and we usually think about this large area with a fence around it, that's not what a territory is for nomadic people. Usually they see it as, for instance, with the Bedouin, if they have um, areas where where they uh, graze, they have their animals grazing and they have movement between summer and winter uh, grazing lands, then the the route that they take in between will be considered their territory. But it will also be considered their territory during a certain time of the year and when they are using it. If they choose, they don't have a set migration route like sometimes we sometimes we uh, reconstruct that in prehistory. We say, oh, it was it was a circular movement, and they went from site A to site B. We don't have that necessarily with the Bedouin of um, of the past hundred two hundred years. It's based a lot on the rainfall, about how uh, the greenery is, how much uh, vegetation we have, and if the place that they would like to go to can't sustain them, then they will obviously choose a different area. So also the territories are not something set. You could say that it's possibly a much larger territory, which each time they use only a smaller section of it based on uh, that year and the flocks that they need to feed and and the people that they have with them. Can you describe the tribal Dira system um, and how it evolved in the Negev in relation to this quasi-emergence of agricultural practices? So the Dira is is really very much connected uh, to this change because Dira is really the communal grazing lands of a tribe and all of the available sources in the land. So if I have uh, I belong to a tribe and I have my flock, I can actually use any area which belongs to my tribe. And it's equal to everyone. It's the water sources are equal to everyone. You can 
not put any restrictions on this. And especially uh, the wells with which reach um, ground level, it's not mm-hmm. ground level water. Is that what yeah, groundwater. Yeah. <laughs> groundwater. Anyhow, um, those are equal and available to everyone. And the Bedouins do not make wells, do not dig wells. They use wells which are already in existence. The same thing with the agricultural dams and terraces. They use things which are already in existence from previous generations. And now when we have the agricultural aspect of their life starting to emerge, it was, first of all, in our areas of the Negev, we're talking about the central Negev, the the Negev highlands, it was only seasonal, a very small part of their livelihood. They were still very much based on, still are very much based on flocks of sheep and goat. But the mini of agriculture, that's already someone who's putting effort into the land. It's usually a small um, percentage, maybe one or two families who are cultivating this wadi when someone else is cultivating the next wadi. And then you have this uh, process of privatization when things are becoming privately owned. So if beforehand the deal was actually belongs to everyone equally to the whole tribe, now we see that we have to say, this is mine. And the minute that you have that, it actually takes away from the communal land, which belongs to all of the dealer together. And one of the things that they do is, okay, so we see that they're putting effort into the land, they're putting in labor. They're also starting to build cisterns, which is to catch runoff water. And the minute you put more effort into something, it is privately owned and it becomes your own. Now, one of the interesting things that, that, um, that came out of, of um, this whole situation is we said that the dira is equal to everyone. That means that also women can use the dira. They also go out with their flocks. They also are in charge of, of the young animals and um, they can also inherit the, the use of the dira. Whereas the agricultural lands are privately owned and they are not and cannot be uh, passed on to women. So in that sense, it actually hurts their, um, their status. And the deal is also really important because it's the way that it brings the tribe together. It's a really important asset that is also part of the identification of the tribe, of another aspect, which again, just pulls them together and keeps the unity of the tribe. And as that diminishes, then also the tribe slowly, slowly starts to lose its power in, and unity. Okay, so if we can transition now more to the archaeological side of things, which is your specialty. Can you talk about the tribal wasim, the rock art of the Bedouin in the Negev and other kind of inscribed archaeological evidence for how the Negev Bedouin convey property ownership and land rights? How would you explain practices like the wasim to listeners? Uh, So first of all, it's a sign of identity we usually tend to say that's a tribal marking, but it's not necessarily tribal because it can also be a smaller group, but it represents a group. It could be a tribe. It could be a confederation. It could be a chamula, which is an extended family. Um, it could also be the smaller family unit. Um, and it's a sign which it represents an agnate group. It goes down from father to son. Basically, it's a sign which can represent a very large group of people. If we were talking about the Dira as a cultural uh, aspect which brings the tribe together, then this is definitely, the, the Wasim is definitely 
um, a mark, a cultural mark, which represents a people, which represents a group. Now, the wasm and the camel branding is the same. So we can see that there is a parallel between the signs used to, uh, to brand camel and show ownership markings and that of the wasm. But if you look at sheep or goat, it's a different marking. It's a different way of signing the animal. Horses are not marked at all, but camels are. But we don't really have much information. We have information of travelers who are going through uh, Saudi Arabia or Sinai or the Negev who mentioned the fact that they see these markings. Um, but when we don't have a, a firsthand account of what it means or how it's used, and it has changed dramatically over the past 50, 60 years, we find Wasim everywhere throughout the Negev. Uh, everywhere that we have Rakar, we have Wasim. And it's not, if we think about territory and we think about fences or we think about lines or we think about edges, we do not find them in any way that we would be able to say it ends here, that we have a certain line which is formed by the rock art here. It seems like almost every grazing land has wasim, and then we, we believe that it was made by bored shepherds. They're sitting, they're out there. They have time to kill, so they can either play the flute or, or um, carve something out of wood, or they can, meanwhile, take a stone and start pounding the stone next to them. And I believe that many times we're just really affected by the culture that we live in and by the symbols that we see. And the wasim was something that was surrounding them, something that they knew, something that they recognized. And next thing you know, you look down at the rock and you can fashion it into that symbol. And then we see a few things which are a bit different. Every now and then we find a wasim which stands out a bit. What does that mean? That means it could be on a very, very large rock. We found one uh, rock which kind of stood up and it had different faces to the rock and every single angle of the rock had the same wasim on it. And that's like a signpost. It was also next to a route that led down into the wadi, but that's like no matter where you come from, you see that sign, it's the same sign. If you missed it, you turn around, you see it again. And that's coming to say something. That's coming to say, um, this is mine. And even though it seems like the wasim that we see throughout the Negev Rakhart isn't a meaning of this is my territory, that's what it translates into. So they may have been doing it absentmindedly, but they are not going to go into someone else's territory. You have to come into agreement before you cross into someone else's territory. You need to know if you're allowed to use the water or you aren't. Usually you would be able to, but you have to first come to that agreement. So if you're um, going into someone else's land without that permission, you're definitely not going to be engraving your sign. And even if you are going in with permission, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But it shows the presence of people in a certain area over time. Uh, that That's for sure. I mean, obviously we, we can't find wasim of a certain tribe if they weren't in a certain area. So with the agriculture, it seems to be less used. It is occasionally. Um, the borders of, of um, agricultural plots are usually signed either by, not signed, they're, they're marked in the land, either by small stone piles, natural uh, um, characteristics, like if there's a tree. <laughs> we don't have many, so that would be a, a sign or a certain mountain. Nowadays, because the, the stone piles, if they're small, they can be moved. So they also talk about very large stones. 
Uh, now that we also have tractors, then you can find a ditch, you can find uh, stone piles made also from the clearing of the field, and also quills. They used to um, plant quills next to the, the edges of the land. The quills, first of all, they, they bloom in autumn, they bloom before their leaves uh, sprout, and it's just amazing. It's the stick, which is sometimes uh, a meter and close to two meters in height and flowering. But nowadays you just drive through the Negev and you see them everywhere. Every hillside has all these quills. It's beautiful, but if the original use was to mark territories or, or the separation between one family's land and the other, that no longer can be used. So we know that that was originally one of the uses, but that's no longer possible. And another way to mark, uh, so we have the difference between family territories and tribal territories. So family territories, we'll see the small stones, larger stones, um, possibly the wasim. With tribal territories, one of the marks that we have usually is cemeteries. And we see this from prehistoric times until nowadays, the cemeteries are always at the edge of the territory. And in the cemeteries, I have had the occasion to find a few wasim on the, the headstones. So that was actually very interesting. As an archaeologist, Dr. Eisenberg Degen's specialty is in rock art, like the wasim and other forms of tangible evidence in the landscape and in the material record, for how the Negev Bedouin inscribe social relationships with the land. But in addition to these sorts of alternatives for borders and signifiers of property ownership, I was also curious about potential Bedouin alternatives to practices of map making that might differ from and might overlap with the sort of maps that we tend to be more familiar with. So for more about this, I talked to Dr. Amir Galilei, who is a lecturer in geography at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he researches the historical and cultural geographies of nomadic peoples in the Middle East. And so in your publications, you've talked about the concept of mental maps and a sort of mental geography that you see appearing based in your research among the Negev Bedouin. Can you define those? Can you talk about what you mean by those terms? Basically, after about 20 years or 15 years of study, I started to try to arrange my thoughts. And I thought to myself, okay, let's, let's understand a few things. One is how do people actually arrange their own surrounding? Okay, how do they? What is their per perception of their uh, immediate surrounding, of their environment, of their you know of the region? Okay, that's one question. And the other question was, okay, I'm standing in a friend's house in a village in Jordan. Okay, and he say I'm a Bedouin, but he actually um, staying in in a house in a permanent house that's very, very similar to the house of his neighbor on the other side, on, on the other village. And he said, no, no, he's not, he's not a Bedouin, he's a farmer. And I thought to myself, okay, what exactly, how these differences are actually um, getting into, into a kind of, you know, of, of a reality. So these two questions actually guided me in the last few years. And I, I started to, to gather again all my, all my documents and all my data and, and think of, and rethink about it. Now, because I'm a geographer, one thing that I that really um, uh, interests me, or or I thought about these, you know, geographical terms, and then I 
went back to one of the classic works from the late 50s. Um, it's, it's the uh, book of Lynch. It's called The uh, Image of the City. And he actually, the first one, I think the first one who started to use this term mental maps, and he showed that people and sometimes as, as, uh, as private people and sometimes as groups um, have uh, certain perceptions on their uh, immediate surrounding. I think that the, the best uh, example I can give is the one when I was sitting with my students in Eilat, which is on the border of Israel and Jordan. And I asked them, what is the closest city to Eilat? And the, you know, their first answer was places in Israel, you know, Be'er Sheva, which is about 200 kilometers from Eilat, or Dimona, which is about 150 kilometers from Eilat. And they even didn't think of Aqaba, which is five kilometers from Eilat, but it's on the other side of the border. So you can understand that people um, arrange their, their, um, their immediate surrounding in, in a certain in a certain way. It can be differences between I don't know between genders. It can be differences between different populations or or uh, single people. So that was one thing, and I started to to read about uh, mental maps, and I understood that yes, people are arranging their immediate surrounding in a certain way. But then I thought to myself, okay, these people are sedentarized. They're not sedentarized. Actually, it's, it's sanitarization. It's not the, the term because sanitarization is the process of, of settling down. These, these are people that were born and grew up in cities or in, 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 in settlements, in towns for, for decades and hundreds of years. And we're talking on, a, on a, a nomadic population. So then I started to ask myself, okay, how do they arrange their um, their uh, surrounding. And, and I actually went back to my seminar in my undergraduate studies and all what I did from that. And I understood that these people arrange their environment in a, in a different way because if you're sitting in, in the United States and I'm sitting in the Negev Desert in Israel and, and we have all sort of mutual language uh, about, about geography, it's maps basically, okay? It's, it's written. Right, it's written, and we have the same. You can know exactly where I live and what is the name of the I don't know of the park nearby, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I know about about your the place you're uh, staying in right now. The same the same things, but the nomads have nothing like that. They have all their geography and histories oral, okay, and uh, they move all the time in in a certain place or or in sorry in a certain area or 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 in distant area or or are other uh, things. Uh, and then I understood that they arrange their surrounding in a different way. For instance, um, long, dry riverbeds. It's called a wash, I think, if I'm not wrong in, in English. So long washes like this, it's, 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 a, it's a very long uh, or, or a big area. So when you look at place names, you understand that they divide the area into certain areas into specific areas according to, to their terrain or the specific environment. Um, for instance, a place that have uh, not a lot of plants uh, and then you don't have a lot of grazing areas, we call Wadi Fikri. Uh, fikri means poor. The other part of the same wash, okay, will be with, with quite a lot of areas for grazing. It's called El uh, Tohani, means um, uh, making a living. So uh, things like this, uh, this is one thing. The other thing that I have realized that 
people arranging their their area by um, I called it uh, social and geographical uh, anchors. Means that uh, if you have a tree in the middle of the desert, it have a name of a certain family. It's not necessary that they will stay there the whole year round. They're not staying there the whole year round because they are nomads, pastoral nomads. But on the other hand, yes, this considered to be their tree. Sometimes the names will be something much more neutral, like Elabayeth. Elabayeth, it's the whitish or the white one. Okay, it's a white hill in the middle of the of a, a, a brown rocky desert. So everybody knows this is a, a certain place. This is not a, a social geographical anchor. It's not it just a, only some kind of a of a neutral uh, anchor. About uh, about water sources uh, again, you have certain water sources that uh, they have. Uh, specific a specific name that actually connected them to a certain family and some of them will be so totally neutral so totally you know something like a general name that not connected not connected to any uh, certain family etc uh, etc et so this is uh, so this is uh, basically one thing the metal map and the the other thing was um what about what about people that okay they have been sedentarized but they still see themselves as Bedouins. What exactly uh, make the difference between them and, and their neighbors that are farmers? Then I understood that it's something much more deep than just you know what you see. Um, it's a kind of a state of mind. Um, they still see themselves as nomads. They still uh, feel that they are connected to the to the to the um, the kind of living outside, connected to the nature. Um, they still uh, feel that they always can get their flocks outside, even if they are already city dwellers. They can always uh, take a camel and go outside for a few days. I'm not sure even if they can really do it, but they feel that they, they can. It's their connection to the, to the environment, to the uh, ability to move around okay, from, place, uh, from place to place. Basically, this was the, this was the the two themes that I was trying to combine in in, in this uh, in this research. So you brought up borders and the issue of national borders and how, in our worldview, these play a really important role in how we define the world and how we imagine the world and our settings and our communities. Could you talk about from your research, how you've seen the Negev Bedouin organize themselves in relation to the Israeli-Egyptian border and how the increasing militarization of that border has maybe affected how Bedouin communities are able to move around and are able to hold on to these mental maps and their tribal kinship ties. The borders of in, in, in the region I'm living in were actually pre-state borders. Why? Because it was board, it, it were borders that made by colonialized empire like Britain and France, and they decide, or, or, or the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, okay? And they decide uh, exactly where the border is going to, is going to be um, with no any care about who live there, especially for, if it was in the middle of the desert. And when the state of Israel was established, it was actually established into international borders that were established before the existence of the state of Israel. The Egyptian-Israeli border is actually a border that was uh, drawn on the maps in 
1906 between the um, the British and the Ottoman Empire. There was no um, modern Egypt yet, or it was a kind of a modern Egypt. What? But they were under the rule of of, of the of the um, British uh, uh, government in 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 a way. And and of course the state of Israel was not, was not existed. It it was part of the Ottoman Empire. So. This is one thing to understand: the the establishment of of the modern states were actually in the borders that nobody else. I mean, no, they were not drawing their own maps. Okay, it was drawn by by someone else who stayed in in Europe. So this is one thing, and the other thing is that okay, so for many many years after the establishment of the state of Israel and and Egypt were was was a modern state, uh, especially after 1952, and then you have a line on the map. And so what? You know, it's it's a line on the map in the middle of, of, of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. And then you can see two uh, things happening on, on on the same on the same time. One is that the um, Bedouin society do not really they don't really care about this line in the middle of of nowhere on the map. Okay, it's a line on the map. It's not a line in the field itself. And then what you see is that people still cross the border with, they don't really care about it. I have uh, documented about a decade ago, example of, of someone who, he, he's a very honorable uh, judge in the customary law in Egypt, in, in Sinai. Bedouins in Israel, in the Negev, uh, called him to, to be a judge in, in a trial. They just uh, send a jeep to wait for him on the border. And another jeep brought him to the border, and he just crossed the border by foot. There was there was no fence, there was nothing there. Okay, he just crossed the you know the, the desert. He walked uh, 15, 20 meters, half half a mile. I don't know how much he walked by foot. And then a jeep collected him. He gave he he did his job for for two days, and then went back. And nobody knew about it. So so this is one example. I I have documented. I have some recordings of of people. Who, uh, who have uh, tribal uh, disputes, and then they they say uh, something like all the all the tribe this and this is is liable uh, in in Jordan, in Palestine, in Egypt, etc. Uh, etc. Et I mean they don't really care. They maybe use the terms of the geographical, the, the the political terms, but they don't really care about it. That's on one hand. But but on the other hand, you see another thing, and this, and this is that the the border is is actually an advantage. Because if you have uh, differences in, in taxes between between these two st- states, so you can smuggle in order mm-hmm. to make a living. And then they arrange themselves along the border and they make their, their shape their territories as close to the border as they can. Sometimes it's a kind of a corridor, okay? So each uh, a group have a certain corridor from both sides of the of the border. And you can see that they 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 just you know smuggle things uh, uh, from here to there. Okay, so they really treat the border as something physical. So what happened here is something very flexible. Sometimes they will ignore it totally. Sometimes they will uh, uh, use it as a kind of economic tool. What happened is that in 2012, the state of Israel decided to build a fence, a real big, tall, high fence, electric even in some places because of some terror attacks and, and things like this. And then things are started to be much, much more complicated, but I, I, I won't get into that because it's, 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 a, 
it's a thing for another for another episode. So it's it's a real uh, big thing here now. Obviously, these increasingly impermeable national borders create significant problems for pastoralist communities and require the adaptation of these communities around these new border regimes, not just in the cases of Iraq and Israel, as I've talked about in this episode, but in every country that's home to nomadic peoples. But I hope that one thing that you can take away from this episode is that today's national borders are not set in stone, but rather not only are they fairly arbitrary and man-made constructs, but they're also recent constructs and a phenomenon with a relatively short history. And also that there are alternatives, that there are other ways in which we can organize land and geography and society that don't have their same effects. In light of issues like the refugee crisis and the imminent prospect of an increasing number of climate refugees in the future as climate change worsens, borders are something that affects all of us, especially as, at the same time, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to increased restrictions on movement for virtually everyone around the world. And we've seen that once borders are hardened, it's very rare for states to then soften them again. For example, as Dr. Shook asked earlier in the episode, at what point does the Iraq-Saudi border become demilitarized if the terrorist threat that caused the militarization in the first place is determined to no longer exist? Will it ever be demilitarized, or are these just expedient excuses for states to solidify their control over land and people and resources? But in contexts where we have indigenous nomadic peoples living around these border zones, we can look to these cases to better understand how nomadism and pastoralism are especially affected by nation-state borders, but also for alternative modes of defining and signifying land and property ownership that don't have the same social and ecological consequences. Thanks so much for listening, and special thanks to Dr. Carl Shook, Dr. Jafar Jodhuri, Dr. Salah Hatem, Dr. Davida Eisenberg-Degen, and Dr. Amir Galilei for speaking with me, as well as to Zainab Mahdi for translating parts of these interviews. A written transcript of this episode is available, as well as a bibliography and suggestions for further readings on the topics covered in this episode. So please check that out if you're interested at digitalnomads.buzzsprout.com. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to get in touch with me at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>